First of all, it's really good to be back. Uh, I miss this little thing and uh, miss you, miss uh, doing what God has called me to do, which is just an absolute privilege. And I feel like there's a hole in my life when I'm not walking in that. And uh, so I'm, I'm blessed. I'm grateful, grateful for you. As we reflect back on the year that's just passed, uh, again, I, I'm looking forward to finishing Ruth, and, and I, I kind of went back and forth as do we jump right back into Ruth this morning, or oh Lord, is there a message you have for this church, for us? Uh, and I think often there's value in taking inventory. I, I've told you guys before that uh, when I come to the Lord's table, I, for me, yes, of course, I, I am celebrating the Lord's uh, recognizing his death until he comes and those things that were instructed in God's word. It's also a place where I mark time. And I look at what's going on in my life from the last time I was at the Lord's table and uh, taking the bread and the cup, and, and which we're going to do this morning. So if you have some bread and some juice or something, the, the substance is not as important as what it means. So Grab something in your house, and, and at the end of the message this morning, we're going to partake of communion together. But reflecting back, we do that with New Year's. And uh, with the new year, we very often look back, and we uh, <laughs> I've noticed a huge increase in exercise equipment commercials on television. Uh, because people look back and they go, ah, oh, man, I'm a mess or whatever. And, uh, and, and you, you just know that there's this trend and people are making new resolutions and all of that. And I'm not saying those are necessarily bad or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a place where we mark time. And this has been, to say it very, very lightly, an interesting year just passed. Been a lot of pressures, a lot of difficulties, a lot of things sort of in motion. And the question occurs to me, what can we learn? How has God instructed us through these things? Because he's always working. He uses everything. And he's using the events. He's using the circumstances. He's using the environment that we're in to work powerful things in our lives. So how is the Lord growing you, growing me in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of turmoil with this crazy disease. And uh, we'll talk about that. In the midst of uh, economic uncertainty, in the, in the midst of everyone is an expert out there and, and all of that. And for the answers, of course, we consult God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is recounting God's word. He's using God's word properly here. And he's going through Israel's history in the Exodus. But he's doing it so that he can make a point. In, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, we read the Apostle Paul is writing to this Corinthian church and inciting these things. He says, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's a powerful statement, folks. What it's saying is that if you want to make sense of the world that you're in, you reach for God's word. You look into God's word. You look at life through the lens of God's word as he has brought his word to us 
It's by his spirit through his word, always. Looking back at the Old Testament, this great value, just great uh, sort of scenic vistas in the Old Testament. We see the, uh, I've mentioned before that God tends to paint with a big brush. I used to be a, a pictorial painter. I'd paint these huge billboards and I would use oil paints just like you would for a canvas in your house, but I use great big honking brushes to do it. And, uh, you know, I'd be painting a minivan 25 feet long or a mountain range 48 feet long or whatever it was. And so we see these big brush pictures in the Old Testament and they have relevance. They have meaning. They have importance to us. And as I've been parsing through in my own heart and mind and looking at uh, the year 2020 <laughs> and uh, all of that and saying, Lord, what about this? He's faithful. I was reminded in Jeremiah chapter 7, we see Jeremiah standing at the gate to the temple. And he's prophesying to the people that were coming and going. He's also prophesying to the nation. Uh, why? And in order to understand that, to understand the context of Jeremiah there in, in, in chapter 7, and we're not going to uh, do much work in chapter 7, but that's where Jeremiah is. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 9 this morning because he is still at the gate to the temple. But in order to understand why, why is Jeremiah, why has God positioned him there to prophesy difficult things to the people? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back. And... and if you look back, uh, there was a king who was, his name was Josiah. He was the boy king. And he had passed legislation to make false worship illegal in Judah, uh, to tear down the high places, uh, is what they were called. We'll talk about that. But his, really, what he was doing was undoing the work that his father Ammon, but especially his grandfather Manasseh had done because Manasseh was the most godless king that Judah had known. If you look at the period of the kings in the divided kingdom, now the, the nation of Israel, the nation was divided at this point. There were the northern ten tribes, and the most evil king, and all of the kings that were in the north were evil. <laughs> there was not a godly king in the bunch. There were a number of good kings in the southern kingdom, it was called Judah, or Judah and Jerusalem, because uh, Jerusalem is included in the southern kingdom, even though it's within the territory of Benjamin. So, uh, but we call it Judah. So, uh, Manasseh had gone through and actually undone the things that his father had done. Uh, the things that Manasseh did was he reversed most of the religious reforms that his father, a, a godly king named Hezekiah, you can read about him that he had made. He was a godly man. He was used greatly <clears throat> in the, the southern kingdom, in Judah, uh, when the Assyrians were encamped about and he brought water down from the Gihon Springs through Hezekiah's tunnel. You can go there today. And uh, he, he did a lot of good things spiritually, physically for the people. But Manasseh, his son, uh, he was reversing a lot of what had gone on. So you, you got to understand the picture here. We're talking about there were some people in power that were good, that sought the Lord, that 
followed after the Lord, and there were some who were not. And generally the trend was, was the good king would implement reforms and he would bring the people back to the heart of worship. And then the, the next guy that if he came and he was a godless king, he would just undo it. I don't have to reach very far to talk about application in our day. So the next thing that Manasseh did was he extended polytheistic cultic worship throughout the land. Uh, the, the false gods of Baal, the Asherah, which was, uh, these were very corrupt. They were just sick religions, very sexual in nature and, uh, but perverse. They, he brought in Moloch worship. He was, it's thought that he even worshiped Moloch himself. And that's where they would put the babies on the arms of this big, metal bowl that they stoked a fire in. And uh, I could go into the, the Valley of Tophet, which is talked about here in Jeremiah, which means the place of the drums and where they would pound on the drums so loud. The reason that the drums were there was to drown out the screams of the children. Horrible time in Israel's history. So the next thing that Manasseh did, uh, is he worked overtime to silence the voice of God. Being a godless man, God would raise up voices for himself. And Manasseh was a king for about 45 years. And there are a series of prophets, I'm not going to go into them this morning, that God raised up. And and Manasseh was sure to persecute, to kill the prophets of God that he'd raised up during his reign. So after Manasseh died, his son, as I mentioned, his son's name was Ammon. And he was a chip off the old block, and I don't mean in a good way. Second Kings tells us that Ammon did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, as did Manasseh, his father. And he walked in all the ways that his father walked in and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. So Ammon was not, he, he wasn't a very popular king, even though he was carrying on his father's perverse, corrupt work. Uh, and he was killed by his own servants. He, he served as a king for a short time, between one and two years. Scholars differ on that, but, but suffice it to say he had a short reign. So the people didn't like that, that Ammon's servants had killed him, so they killed um, the servants. And then the people took Ammon's son, Josiah, and they made him king at eight years old. Now, I, yeah, I know this is a lengthy history lesson, but you got to understand that there's a trend here. There's a pattern here. And I want to identify it because it really overlays a lot of the things that we see in our world around us today. And the things that God has to say in the midst of this are significant and they're powerful. So Josiah, as I mentioned, he brought great reform to the land. He destroyed the high places, uh, the localized places of cultic worship that Manasseh had brought in. And now the high places in the Old Testament, it's an interesting term. There were times where Israel actually worshiped on the high places before the temple, uh, before they got the house for God together, that they worshiped in these places. And they weren't high because they were at the top of the, <laughs> the mountain range or whatever. They were called high places because they were places of worship. The high places that Josiah had destroyed were the places of cultic worship. It reminded me, Stacy and I were, I got invited to 
um, to teach at a church in Myanmar, Burma, one time. And, and there we were in this town called Techelik. And uh, I looked out, I was standing on the street, and I looked out at the mountain next to this church. And there's this huge mountain here. And, and there were these roofs, very Asian-looking, very um, uh, distinctly Buddhist, uh, of, of these pagodas that were sticking up, and they dotted the mountainside. And essentially, they're shrines. And that's what the high places were. They were places, there, they were shrines where the people would go and worship these false gods. So false worship was rampant in the land, and Josiah said, no more. I'm going to tear them down. He said to destroy them. The other thing that Josiah did is he cleaned up and renovated the temple. The temple had been a mess. Solomon's temple and all of its glory had faded with the false worship, the false gods that they brought it. They had profaned the temple by bringing worship of these false deities actually inside. That's why he's standing at the gate of the temple, why Jeremiah is, because it was during Josiah's reign that Jeremiah was raised up as a prophet. So he cleaned up, he renovated the temple. They found the book of the law. I love the stories that are in there. And they reinstated uh, the, the public reading of God's word and, and things were going well. He also reinstated actual worship in the temple, observance of the law of Moses. The other thing that he did was he outlawed, he made it against the law to worship any deity, any God, lowercase g, but Yahweh, the only true God. As I mentioned during this time, Jeremiah was raised up as a prophet, as a voice for God in the land. Now, Josiah reigned for about 31 years, and at the end of his reign, he was warned. He said, I'm going to go to Megiddo up in uh, the Valley of Jezreel. It's a, the geography is not important, but he said, I'm going to go to Megiddo. I'm going to go fight against the Egyptians there. Uh, the Egyptians were in the land and, and the prophet warned him, said, don't go. It's not your fight. He went anyway and he was killed. So by the Egyptian king, Necho was his name. So the point in this, guys, is that Josiah's reforms, while they'd been good, they were shallow and they wouldn't last. Why? You know, the best way I can explain it to you is I had, uh, for a period of time, I did prison ministry. And and one of the things I would mention to the inmates is uh, I would say, I would ask them for a show of hands, say, Guys, they call this a correctional institution. How many of you have been corrected? <laughs> and usually I got a lot of laughs because that's not what happens in a correctional institution. And I would talk about the difference between correction and transformation. His transformation of the inner man, the inner woman is where it's at. That's the work that God wants to do. And what Josiah's reforms did was they affected the outer man. You could pass a law against worshiping false gods, but if you don't get the false gods out of the people's hearts, guess where they're going to gravitate? Jeremiah would witness the nation sliding back or backsliding into greater spiritual decay than they had been in before. As a result, he saw greater moral, social, and political decay over the reigns of the next and final four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. 
So Josiah had reigned for this period of time. He'd made these reforms, but the minute that he was gone, the people just, the, 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 the false worship, the garbage just flowed right back into their culture. And the nation was beginning to unravel. The nation was falling apart. And Jeremiah saw it happen. He's grieved at the temple gate. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weave day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You may have heard that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Mentioned before that he was broken over these things. It affected him profoundly. Uh, he was, he was witnessing the fall of the people of God. He was witnessing what would become the destruction of a nation. God had showed him what that was going to look like. He was communicating it to the people with very little effect. In verse two, he says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them for they're all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. What they had in the wilderness, because the wilderness in Israel, I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, okay, there was the, the part that was, that you could actually farm. And then there was the desert as you got back. It's kind of like if you go from Western Oregon to Eastern Oregon and, and you know, the rich fertile land was on the Western side of the mountains. Jerusalem's at the top. As you start going over the other side, you get into the desert. And that's where a lot of times the, uh, yeah, the nomads, they would, they would take their herds or flocks and, and they would be able to graze them there because there are patches of grass and all of that. It's very dusty, very dry and not a lot of water, but livable. The wilderness, on the other hand, is dirt and rocks. <laughs> and that's about it. And so what they had in those days, because when people had to make a, a journey, we've been looking in Ruth, where, where Ruth and her family left Bethlehem and they went down to Moab. They would have to go through the wilderness to go to Moab on the other side of the Jordan River, down by the Dead Sea. And they would have these little structures along the way that they built for people to be able to lodge in, to get out of the sun in. And what Jeremiah is saying here is, is that, he said, you know, rather than be here, I'd rather be in a hut in the wilderness, in this little lean-to thing, because that would be better than this. I would, I would just as soon be away from my people to go from them, because they're seeking after carnal stuff. He says, they're all adulterers. They're in an assembly of treacherous men. Verse 3, he says, and, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They're not valiant for the truth on earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. I look at this, folks, and, and this isn't a, a, a downer message, I promise. It does get good. It's not a, but, but I look at the current state of our world. I look at the tensions that are there. I look at the things that God is allowing to happen in His divine providence. I don't understand it all, but I know that it's all His. I look and I see uh, an overlay of the things that we're seeing here. G. Campbell Morgan, 
great uh, scholar, Bible scholar. I love reading his stuff, and a lot of times I look at it when I'm preparing to teach. Uh, he says this about uh, the book of Jeremiah. He says, the permanent values of the book of Jeremiah constitute its living message. First, it teaches us that sin is its own destruction. No policy can outmaneuver God. National rebellion is national ruin. Sin carries within itself the force of its own punishment and its own retribution. Secondly, it affirms that the heart of God is wounded by sin. Judgment is his strange act. I like the way he puts that. He weeps over the doom of a city. He judges a city and he weeps over it. Finally, it declares that the ultimate victory is with God. Quote, he made it again. And what he means in that is in Jeremiah chapter 18, in the first four verses, we read this. This is the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. What God is saying here prophetically through Jeremiah is, look, I can remake you. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that all things have become new, that we're in Christ, that when we come to Christ, that we're a new creation. What he's saying here is that's what I want to do with my people. Finishing G. Campbell Morgan's statement, he says, we're, we are to learn that God must punish sin and that the most awful fact of sin is that it wounds God. Finally, that if it, if we will but have it so, if we will but turn to him and listen to his call, he overrules by canceling and breaking the power of sin, making again the vessel marred in the hand of the potter. So what he's saying here is that God promises to relent, to remake the marred vessel if only the people would turn their hearts to him. And that's the appeal of Jeremiah as he's weeping at the gate of the temple. And he's warning the people of judgment that must come. God must judge sin. He is holy. And sin is what separates man from him. Now, in Jeremiah's case, God would ultimately restore, yet it wouldn't be until after the nation fell and suffered the consequences of their rebellion against him. So in the midst of Jeremiah's alternately mourning over and prophesying against the nation, God speaks a powerful message of grace through him, which resounds down through time to you and I. It has great relevance, and it applies to us in the world in which we now live. It has great relevance as we reflect and we look back at the year just past, as we look at the stresses, at the turmoil, at the unrest, and we we try to make sense of it. This is what he has to say. One second here. Dropping down to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord. So God's speaking through Jeremiah. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his wisdom. Notice in this whose these things are. He says his man in his own wisdom. Man in his own might, man in his own riches. 
Now, I want to talk about glory for a minute, because to glory in something is to boast about or to celebrate it, is to proclaim it as a source of one's happiness or satisfaction, one's contentment. Speaking on behalf of Yahweh, Jeremiah describes the things that men normally glory in, their wisdom, their power, and their wealth. You might also add in our age, their fame. It's amazing how many people are seeking after fame, after recognition. So the first thing I want to look at here, as we say, Lord, how can we learn? What are the lessons that from the year just past? Is finding satisfaction in man's wisdom. That's an interesting pursuit. It's something that all of us, again, in, in the natural, we gravitate towards wanting to find the expert, wanting to find the one that has the answers. And I've discovered in 2020 that very often that's a fool's errand. First Corinthians chapter, first Corinthians chapter one, verses 18 through 21 say this, says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It's not about intellect, folks. That's why the gospel, the love of God, is as relevant to the simplest mind as it is to a brilliant theologian and everyone in between. It's not about intellect. In verse 20 in 1 Corinthians, he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I love that passage. It talks about the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of the way that God has ordained that it, the way it's been set up is that if you're, if you're connecting with this message, it's not because of me. It's because of Him. It's because of the Spirit of God knocking on the door to your heart and saying, yes, this applies. Yes, listen up. Yes, read these things. It's the foolishness of the message preached. That's how God works in us. That's how he brings people to himself. Now, looking at 2020, we've seen many who profess to be wise in this past year, haven't we? And some are, to be sure, wise in man's wisdom, yet man's wisdom is limited. As I mentioned, how many experts have you seen or read about in the past year? There are experts on everything. There are experts on coronavirus. There's experts on masks. There's experts against masks. There's a, there are experts on the numbers and there are experts against the, there. And, and it's like, it just goes on and on. I don't know about you, but I have hit media overload more than once. If we try to understand the world around us only through the lens of man's wisdom, it's not going to be good. We're subject to becoming confused, fearful, misguided, deceived, jaded, dismayed. And that is the essence of foolishness, seeking man's wisdom. Do you understand why he does this word play in 1 Corinthians? It's, it is, at the end of the day, it's foolishness to just settle for man's wisdom. The only way to understand these things is through the lens of God's wisdom, 
revealed by his spirit. And again, through his word, it's, it's like, have you guys seen the, like the comedian act? He says, nothing to see here, move along. No real wisdom to boast about here. That's essentially what Jeremiah is saying or what God is saying through Jeremiah in this. You won't find satisfaction in man's wisdom. You won't be able to fully comprehend the events in your life or the circumstances that you're in or the things that you reflect on in this past year. Short of God's wisdom. Seek God's wisdom. Trust that he is the omniscient one. He is the all-knowing one. He is the one who holds it all in his hands. The result is peace. You can have peace in the middle of horrible circumstances. And that's God's will for us. It doesn't mean that we like them, but it means that we trust him in the midst of them. The second thing that we look at here is finding satisfaction in man's power. In the past year, we've seen the rise and the fall, at least potentially, of very powerful men and women, haven't we? There is so much going on out there. There are, at this moment, great power plays in motion. Some of them are known to us. I believe many are not. Powerful men, powerful women, seeking to guide the course of human history, seeking to accomplish agendas that very often are evil, subversive, and just plain wrong. Very often, they look a lot like what was going on with the period of the kings in Jeremiah's day and the kings that came before, the kings that came after King Josiah, as we've looked at. At times, the projection of the power that is in place benefits you and I. At times, it's resulted in a great potential for harm. I was reading this morning of a church in Canada, just this morning, where the police showed up at every one of the elders' homes and issued them criminal citations because they gathered on uh, the Sunday right after Christmas, on the 27th. And, and, and the statement by these elders saying, look, we're just trying to shepherd the flock. We're just trying to care for God's people. We're, we're teaching them to respect authority. We're teaching them good things. And they went on to talk about all of the other things that are going on, the things that are being allowed, the godlessness. I sensed in them and in their statement a similar brokenness to what we see with Jeremiah here. We do well to remember whose world this ultimately is. Yes, for the moment, it's in the hands of the evil one. But we know, I love Revelation chapter 5, when Jesus recovers the title deed to the earth. And when he starts to bring everything to a culmination, which will result in a renewed earth and a renewed heavens, and with him ruling and reigning on the throne personally. In the meantime, we also do well to remember that we love and serve the king of kings. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel reminds King Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one who removes kings and raises up kings. In Romans chapter 13, we're told that, that every soul is subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, whether good or evil. And I wrestle with that at times. I freely confess, yet it's true because the one that we serve is above all of it. Great reminders, great comfort in these days as I reflect on the year just past 
of knowing in whom my life is hidden, in, in whom my trust is, is certainly not in the power that this world yields. It's in the power of God. Nothing to see here. Move along. No real power to boast about here. The third thing that we look at here is finding satisfaction in wealth. Now, this is an interesting one, folks, because he's saying, let not the, the, the wealthy man trust in his wealth, boast in his wealth. He's saying, and, and what we, it's interesting because we kind of grade on the curve with this. We equate earthly wealth with security. And we look at people who are wealthier than us as being wealthy and people that are not as wealthy as us as being poor. And yet that's not how God sees things. What has the past year taught you about our security? Is there any real security to be found in this world? (laughs) I think not. It's not going to be found in a stimulus check. And I'm not saying those are bad things necessarily. It's not going to be found in an IRA. I look at the stock market being at record highs. And I used to be involved in the stock market when I had money to do so. (laughs) But I look at that and I look at the reason why it is at record highs is because so much money has been printed and injected into our economy that it has to flow somewhere. But it's a mirage. And I'm not a stock guy. I'm not telling you what to do with yours. I know what I'm doing with mine, but because I don't have very much. But the point is, is there's no security in the stock market. There's no security in my checking account. Countless families this past year are absolutely destitute. The, the amount, I was reading the other day about the amount uh, of uh, people that are at risk of being ejected from their homes, being evicted, is in the thousands, perhaps the tens of thousands, because there's no money to pay the back rent, and it's still due. I think about when the call came, uh, the email came, that our Kenyan brothers and sisters that we've been connected with in this church, that the pastors were starving. And I think, like I said, it's subjective. It's, it's, it, it, we grade on the curve. We think that we've got problems when we don't have as much for groceries as we would like, or when this bill doesn't get paid this month or whatever. And for those people there, when the word came, it was, look, they're on total lockdown and it's a very harsh lockdown. And they're dependent on what they did yesterday to eat today. And I thought about the security, the photo I put up on the back wall here of them distributing the food that our church had helped to buy. And for that, for them, that bag of rice was security. That was everything. And they knew it wouldn't last very long. The point is, Folks, fortunes change. I've seen a lot of that in the last year. But Jesus doesn't. Hebrews 13.8 says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when your life is hidden in him, you can make sense of these things. It may not be easy, but it, there's understanding to be had. And with understanding comes peace. <laughs> a funny story about this that I thought about uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, my daughter, uh, <laughs> up until she went to heaven, uh, she lived with her husband in Mesa, Arizona. And 
her husband's father was a, a, a very well-known real estate broker in, in the Phoenix area, in the whole valley there. And he had just finished building a beautiful new home. And when I would visit them, they would give me one wing of the house and they lived in the other wing of the house. And and my daughter and her husband lived, they called it the garage mahal because it was the apartment they built off the back of the garage when they were building the house. And so they welcomed them to live there. And I loved visiting there. It was like, this is yeah, a nice pool and all that stuff. Anyway, it was a super nice house. And I was visiting one time and, and Ben, my, my daughter's father-in-law, uh, and he and his wife loved the Lord and all that. But he, he was talking about his home because it was just finished. And, and I mean, there was this white wool carpeting all through the wing of the house where they lived. And he had just finished saying, you know, <laughs> this is all meaningless at the end of the day. And he meant it. And, and you know, it's just stuff, John. It's just stuff. And right then, my daughter's dog, Miko, has some gastric problems. And I'm not going to go too far into it and let loose across the wool carpet significantly. And I looked at Ben, and he just kind of looked at me, and then he stared at the floor, and I thought, what a challenge that is to what you just said. We've been challenged this year, folks. And yeah, there are times where there's a comical aspect to it, because sometimes it's so ludicrous, it's like, what else do you do? You you laugh or you cry kind of a thing. But essentially... Nothing to see here, folks. There's no real security to boast about in this world. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. I love this. This is God's answer to the, 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 the thing, the statement he's just made. He says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. Let me say it again. Let him who glories, let him who boasts, that's what that word means, boast in this, that he understands me and he knows me, that I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, we should understand something. God's not rebuking man's instinct to look for glory here. Instead, he's guiding that instinct to its proper destination because... Let's face it, the problem with man is not that he longs to glory in something. The problem is he generally glories in the wrong stuff. God says, I will not share my glory with another. Glory in these things. Here's an honest question. What's the highest aspiration of your life? If the answer is anything short of understanding and knowing God in Jesus Christ, there's some work to do. Another question, why is this so important? In Jeremiah's day, this was critically important. Why would God speak this as Jeremiah stands at the gate to the temple, prophesying judgment, doom for the nation, weeping, and then God comes across with this beautiful message of grace. In Jeremiah's day, it was critically important because as their society collapsed and as their nation fell and it was going to fall, As calamity broke out all around, people needed to know that there's a God who delights in exercising loving kindness, that he is a God of love. He delights in judgment, not because he is out to judge people because he's harsh, but because he is God. As God, as I mentioned, he must judge sin. 
because it's anything but who he is. That's a, that's a, that's a reality. And for some, it's a harsh reality. If you're on the other side of the cross, you can fix that this morning. But he delights in exercising loving kindness and judgment, righteousness on the earth. Folks, the principle for us is virtually the same as it was for those in Jeremiah's day. Look around. Look at what's happening in our culture. I told my wife after I read that article about the church in Canada, I said, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to to see what's next here. As people's natural tendencies and our natural tendencies are to lean on our own stuff, our own wisdom, our own understanding about these things, our own power or to, I've got my favorite guy and boy, if they get into office, then it's all going to be better. And there may be some aspects of truth or not to that with different views. I respect that. But I've got my bank account. I've got my retirement account. I've got this. I've got that. And, and so therefore, I'm secure. Folks, those are illusions. And we're challenged. At times, severely challenged. And there have been severe challenges in the year just past. And we need to know that we can lean into the one with all knowledge all power, and a perfect love for you, for me. You know, hell exists, and God doesn't exist to send people there. As a matter of fact, he does all that he can to prevent them from going. He doesn't want to judge. He must judge. Finishing this passage in Jeremiah, in verses 25 and 26, uh, Jeremiah continues to prophesy. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. He goes into, he goes into a, a list of the nations that were surrounding Israel because their practices were the ones that were polluting the people of God. Their practices were the ones that flowed right back in when Josiah died. Their practices were the ones that were trying to overwhelm the people of God with their ideologies and with their, their particular priorities and look around, it's happening. He says, all these nations are uncircumcised and all in the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. That's a fascinating statement. What can we learn from that? Stay close to the Lord because having the sign of the covenant isn't enough. What do you mean by that, Pastor John? Well, God has always dealt with man through covenants. And a covenant, it means contract or agreement. And and he's the one that writes it. (laughs) It's not up to us. Let me give you some examples. The sign of God's covenant with Adam and Eve was a seed. He said, your seed, through your seed, one would come, a son would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Though he himself would be bruised. God made a covenant with Noah. He said, Noah, I will never again destroy the earth by water. What was the sign of the covenant? The rainbow. So he gave a sign of the covenant. It pointed to the contract. It pointed to the agreement. It wasn't the agreement. The sign of God's covenant with Abraham was circumcision. What's being talked about here. He said, I'll make you the father of many nations, Abraham. There in Genesis And then he ordains circumcision as being a sign of the covenant. Symbolic of a cutting away of the flesh of the heart. Uh, 
That's why he's saying here in Jeremiah, look, you're uncircumcised in heart. I don't care if you have the physical thing in place. Your hearts are far from me. It's not about the sign of the covenant. It's about what the sign of the covenant points to. The sign of the covenant that God made with Moses, with Israel, was the Sabbath. He said, keep that day holy when he gave the law. Now, the signs of God's covenant with the church, there are two of them. We call them sacraments or ordinances, but they're the signs, the marks of the covenant. One is water baptism. The other is the Lord's table, communion. It wasn't enough for Israel to carry the sign of the covenant, circumcision. It was and is a matter of the heart for them That's why he says, you're uncircumcised in heart. I'm going to judge you right along with everybody that is uncircumcised. I'm going to judge you with the rest of the nations. There is no dividing line. Even though that was the covenant mark of God's people, they had so profaned, they had so moved away from God, and they're relying on their stuff. And ultimately, they're relying on the mark of the covenant without having any interest in what it meant. We live in what at least was termed a Christian nation. How many carry a sign of the covenant? Perhaps infant baptism, which we don't believe and teach here for this reason. Or a moment where they made a decision for Christ at summer camp as a teenager. How many are putting their trust in the sign of the covenant without actually coming under the power of the covenant? Jesus said, This is the new covenant in my blood. It's the sign of the covenant. How many are overwhelmed, are searching, are are dismayed, are, are understanding that this life isn't all that there is, and yet they don't know where to turn? How many have perhaps had a religious experience and they're relying on that rather than coming into a relationship, a precious relationship with a living Lord? We're seeing as Israel needed to see, and they eventually would, it would be 70 years later after they were taken into captivity, as they would see that it's more than the mark of the covenant, that they needed to have a relationship with the one whose covenant it is. The old covenant has passed away. We are definitely in the covenant of grace. And and the covenant that Jesus has made has to do with his work, who he is, the person and the work of Christ and what he accomplished when he went to the cross for you and I. When he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he's giving it to his men the night before he would go to the cross where he would permanently atone for sin and offer salvation to any who would come. You can give your life to Christ today. You can find meaning and understanding and depth in the process. It's a simple prayer. Uh, Something like, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm kind of in that group of people that have pushed you away. And I know that I believe that Jesus died for me. And I want to ask you to forgive me for my sins, to cleanse me, to give me a new life and new purpose and new meaning. I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, if that's what you're doing, he will honor that. And he'll come in. The Holy Spirit will come in, take up residence in your heart, and 
soon enough, you'll realize that things are just not the same. If you're doing that this morning, or perhaps you're seeing this online or through our podcast or whatever, if you're doing that, I want to encourage you, if you know someone who's a Christian, tell them. When Jesus called people, when people made a decision for him, he did it publicly. It's hard to do when we're online. It's one of the reasons why we're determined to be open as we can come to that place once more. But give him your heart. Don't rely on the sign of the covenant. If you maybe were baptized as a kid or, or you see that your heart has wandered from him and you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I remember when I was baptized. And you go through all this stuff. It's about being fresh and current with him today. If you perhaps have walked away from the Lord or you have allowed your soul to become lean to the things of God, again, you can fix that in a moment in time through a simple prayer of humility saying, I don't have it figured out, Lord. I don't understand the things that are going on. I don't get man's wisdom. I don't get man's power. I don't get man's wealth. I understand that those things are not going to bring ultimate satisfaction or understanding, but I know you can. If that's the place that you're in, in this new year, recommit your heart, your life to Jesus.